Welcome to the Health Fix Podcast, where health junkies get their weekly fix of tips, tools, and techniques to have limitless energy, sharp minds, and fit physiques for life. Hey, health junkies. On this episode of the Health Fix Podcast, I'm interviewing David Greenwalt again. If you remember him from before, he is a police officer turned health and fitness coach. Now, he is the owner and founder of the Leanness Lifestyle University. It's been around since 1999, so he's been in the game a long time. And what he and I are going to talk about today is the concept of ultra-processed foods and how this could very well be the link to why folks struggle with their metabolisms over time and quite possibly might have some food addictions. Now, not only that, it also relates to our emotional fitness around food, and David and I are going to talk all about that. So let's reintroduce you to David Greenwald. Hey, Health Junkies, I have Coach David back on today, and we are going to be talking about diets. I know everybody's favorite subject, but really, he has what what we're going with Dave's proxy hypothesis about Mm -hmm. eight particular diets and, and why they've all stood the test of time. And I think it's fascinating to talk about diets because let's be honest with women, we always are like, ooh, a diet, maybe it'll work for me. And And whether we like have it in our heads like I really don't want to do diets but I don't know what it is it's just like that little switch in the back of the head something's like well maybe it will work for me maybe I will drop those extra 20 so anyway coach David welcome back to the health fix podcast hey thanks so much for having me back excited to be here yeah so so this foundational principle of diets let's let's jump into it when when was the first time you you went on a diet how old were you? How, like when, when was it? Let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. So for me, um, kind of always being interested and involved in fitness since, ever since I was even a little kid, you know, I, mm-hmm. I might've talked about that the last time I was on when I was in college, I had, I had started training with weights when I was a senior in high school, August of 1982 mm-hmm. at the end of the summer, going into my senior year, I started training with weights. And I was a five, 10 and a half, 142 pound, uh, starting my senior year. That's what I weighed. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to put on muscle. I was intrigued by it. I thought it was, oh, I just thought it was cool. I thought that Lou Ferrigno when he was the Hulk was amazing. (laughs) You know, I mean, I just, it's just the way my brain was. I thought that's cool. So, um, so I started training with weights. And I just ate and ate and ate and ate because I, you know, I would consider myself back then. I'm not now. I want to make sure it's clear to anybody listening. I am not a hard gainer now. If I don't pay attention, I can do like, you know, some people I can smell something and I think I'll put on a couple of pounds. But back then I would, I would consider myself a hard gainer. You know, I, um, it took quite a bit for me to put on, put on weight when I was a teenager there. So anyway, I had to eat and eat and eat and I, and I put on quite a bit of mass and got into bodybuilding. So I, I went on to college. And, uh, when I was about 20, I decided to do my first bodybuilding show. And so I was, um, I had been doing some powerlifting. I had gone for, get this. So the start of my senior year, 140 some pounds. Now I'm about 20 and I'm going to do my first bodybuilding show. And I was about 210 pounds before I started cutting. Wow. What I put on 65, 70 pounds between the age of 17 and 20. Wow. And trust me, it wasn't all muscle. And so I was, I was fluffy. And so I was like, okay, 
I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this show. And the show bodybuilding show was actually at the university that I went to. It was the Mr. Western Illinois university, you know, so, (laughs) and, uh, I didn't have any money. I was, you know, I was a broke college kid and I lived in a dorm and I had to cook on a hot pot in my dorm room. And I, I didn't, you know, there was no fancy anything. I had to boil peas and, you know, I mean, just whatever chicken breast. I listened to what other people did. We didn't have the internet then. It wasn't as easy right. to research things. So I listened to others who had kind of traveled the path before me. And so it's kind of this handed down thing. Um, it wasn't smart. It was terrible. I mean, I I didn't realize that I had gone uh, likely ketogenic, uh, but I remember in my dorm room sitting on my bed and I could just stare at the wall and not have my brain do anything. I mean, <laughs> it was just... It was not fun. And in fact, it was, I got, I did get lean. I did get down to, oh, 6% body fat or whatever. Did the, do the stage, had the six pack, the whole thing. But I hated it. I hated it so bad. I swore. Now I went back on my promise to myself, thankfully, because I learned so much from doing it. And now it's, it's, it's so different now. But anyway, um, I swore I would never do it again. Yeah. I swore I would never do another show again. It was so awful. I hated it. Um, and, uh, so that's my first experience. It was, a, uh, it was just gut it out, just <laughs> do it. You got a show. They, they aren't going to move the date for you, right? The show is the show. It's the date. They aren't moving it for you. So if you're not ready, then you yeah. either don't do the show or you come in looking fluffy and you don't want to look fluffy on a bodybuilding stage. So, um, anyway, that's my experience, my first experience with it. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I think a lot of people, there's two things about the bodybuilding or the fitness competitions for the for the women in particular, like, okay, there's a date, there's an end date that I have to have this completed by, right? Yeah. And then there's also the like, a lot of women who are into fitness, and have some familiarity with with weight, you know, training, there always comes that point at which I will get a woman saying to me, well, maybe I should just do a fitness competition, then I could finally get the weight off. And, and it, I did it many other people did. I actually didn't compete, like even get to that point because I crashed my adrenals, my thyroid and like didn't have a period. I mean, it was crazy what happened (laughs) to me before I even got there. I wasn't Mm. even sick of the baked chicken and, uh, you know, or boiled chicken and and the peas and stuff. So anyway, I think a lot of women um, that are listening right now maybe can resonate if they've, they've been in the circles of, of that whole side of things. So yeah. What is it about these diets that I want I want you to kind of start giving me the scoop on on that what you found between these eight diets and what are those? Let's let's go first like what are those sure. these eight diets? I'm pretty sure it's not the cabbage soup or the hard-boiled egg right. diet. No, it, it kind of it hit me a couple of years back and I was like, you know, you know I, you, if you read in the published research you're going to see a lot on a number of these but you're going to see it in, I'm going to say and especially a lot on, say, the Mediterranean. So I'm going to start with mm-hmm. that one, the Mediterranean mm-hmm. diet. And none of these, by the way, am I bashing. I want to make sure I preface this. As, mm-hmm. This is not a bash session for any of these. It's more like 
it's, you know, the, the reason I kind of refer to it as, you know, D Dave's proxy hypothesis is because I've thought about these and I thought, gosh, even my own, you know, I have uh, a framework. I have a nutritional mm -hmm. framework that we have. Mine isn't rigid. It's flexible, but there is a framework to it. And so, so before I kind of give the punchline away, let's just look at, let's just look at these. So let's start with the Mediterranean. So, and I'll just be super brief with all of these so that people's eyes don't just glaze over. So the Mediterranean diet um, is based on foods uh, and dietary patterns of people uh, that in countries that border the Mediterranean Sea, um, Greece, Italy, Spain, Morocco, th those types of things. And so mm -hmm. um, it's generally plant-based. It is fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, um, healthy fats. Uh, a lot of people are familiar that it's going to be kind of rich in olive oil, you know, the monounsaturated and things, nuts, and mo then moderate amounts, uh, moderate amounts of fish, poultry, and dairy. Okay. Let's just leave that alone. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what it is when I think when most of us hear that we go, okay. Yeah. All right. Got it. Mm -hmm. Next one up. And by the way, Mediterranean has been studied to death with most yeah. results quite positive. Okay. The DASH diet. DASH stands for uh, dietary approaches to stop hypertension. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, again, studied a lot. Um, and it, it emphasizes fruits, vegetables, whole grains, lean proteins, uh, low-fat dairy. Um, that's mostly it. That's mostly dash. And of course, sodium going to be within within the range. Definitely not high because it's 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 the foundation is to reduce or stop hypertension. So we want to keep sodium in check. We don't want it too low. But we definitely don't want it too high in the dash diet. Uh, its approach is really with those foods actually uh, putting an extra emphasis on sodium intake. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, then the mind diet been around quite a bit, been studied. Some is kind of a combination of the Mediterranean and dash. Mm -hmm. um, leafy green vegetables, berries, whole grains, fish, healthy fats, good stuff that's good for the brain. And they, what they were specifically looking at is what foods can help with cognitive function, what foods can help reduce dementia later on, Alzheimer's, all, all of the degenerative mental uh, diseases that occur, okay? So that's the mind, but it's a combination of Mediterranean dash mostly. Let's go, let's go kind of newer. I mean, it's not new okay. as far as human existence, but let's go a little bit newer. Carnivore diet. Now, someone's heard of that. That's pretty new compared mm -hmm. to some of these others. And they go, well, wait a minute. Really restrictive in the sense that it's mostly, or I shouldn't say mostly, it's only animal, you know, mm -hmm. based. Um, meat, fish, eggs, dairy, um, basically avoids all plant-based foods. Okay. Let's leave it. But here are the words. <laughs> meat, fish, eggs, dairy, and then avoids plant-based foods. Pritikin. Pritikin, if, I mean, that's been around for decades. And it's really low fat, uh, high carbohydrate, and emphasizes uh, whole plant-based foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, and it limits, it limits high-fat animal products. Okay, it's Pritikin. Zone. Dr. <laughs> Barry Sears. You know, I still like Barry a lot. I, I re <laughs> really respect him. I, not that, you know, we got to go 40, 30, 30, 40 carb, 40% carb, 30% protein, 30% fat. But I'm also not saying we shouldn't. Um, I, I generally like him, like it. And then, but but anyway, that's just a little, I guess that's a side bias or whatever. But it, but we don't, 
my program, by the way, just it's not like a side bias and we've adopted this thing, not at all, but it's just it just popped into my head because when I hear when I when I see zone or when I think of zone, I just think of you know Barry Sears because he invented it. <laughs> anyway, balanced diet of what? Lean proteins, low glycemic carbs, healthy fats. And for him, that's why I kind of mentioned that ratio. For him, it with each meal, each feeding, in fact, whatever the feeding is, snack or otherwise, mm-hmm. his recommendation that it's 40% carb, 30% protein, 30% fat. And that is for um, kind of hormonal reasons, okay, mm-hmm. icosanoids and all these things that he he kind of really gets into inflammatory um, factors. But bottom line is, listen to the foods, you know, mm-hmm. low glycemic carbs, healthy fats, lean protein. Let's go to Atkins. Mm-hmm. Atkins, right? From the, from the <laughs> 60s and 70s, you know, Dr. Atkins. So super low carbohydrate, generally not more than about 30 grams of carbs a day, high protein, um, from a lot of animal flesh, uh, very low carbohydrate. It can, cons- it, it encourages the consumption of animal based proteins and fats. Um, then South beach, South beach was kind of <laughs> a little bit more commercially fatty, you know, but it was, it, but it was popular, but what is it? It's low carb, high protein that emphasizes lean protein, uh, healthy fats, low glycemic carbohydrates, paleo. <laughs> Paleo, we're going ancestral here. You know, paleo um, emphasizes whole unprocessed foods that were available during our Paleolithic era, era, you know, 10,000 years ago or so. Um, Lean meats, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds. Uh, Flexitarian. Flexitarian. Okay. Kind of newer on 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 the thing, on the spectrum, which is flexitarian is a combination of flexible and vegetarian. Okay. So flexible in the sense that it's primarily fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, but also small amounts of uh, animal-based proteins such as fish, chicken, eggs, and some dairy. Okay. And the last one that I'll mention um, is, I'll just say it's the pagan diet. Pagan diet came from Dr. Mark Hyman. Um, I mean, he named it, you know, it wasn't invented, but it's it's a, a name that he coined um, and it's a combination of paleo and vegan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, emphasizes again, whole unprocessed foods, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, healthy fats, uh, restricts dairy, gluten, and processed foods. Okay. The pagan diet. And this isn't going to be a surprise probably by now, you know, <laughs> to any, you know, anyone listening, but ultimately, and I'm not saying that it's anything goes. I'm not saying that across the board for everyone's body and everyone's metabolism and everyone's uh, uh, biology and everyone's physiology that it's anything goes. But by and large, anything that has withstood some rigor in the scientific community, anything that has withstood more so the health and fitness test of time you know, obviously, mm-hmm. like you were mentioning, cabbage soup. No, it's not going to stand the test of time. It's a, it's a peanut butter diet or whatever, something that's <laughs> so limiting. You know, it's it, it's those aren't going to do it. But like the ones I mentioned have been around some a long time. Um, but ultimately, in the end, and again, not within anything goes thing, but if you're, what do all these things have in common? What do all of these plans have in common? It's really two things. And so that's why I say it, it's a proxy. So to, to make it simple, this for some people to go, if I was going to boil it down to two things, 
what two things would I focus on the most to get the biggest bang for the buck that, and, and I, let, let me come at it this way. I was, let me, let me give the punchline now. Low added sugar, real food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, what we're going to see is every single one of them, low at low added sugar, that is low added sugar, added sugar, you know, anything, um, you know, all of your, your, your sucrose and your artificial sweeteners and even honey syrup on and on and on added sugars, you know, of any kind, it's going to be really low in those. And then it's going to be real food, you know, and real food, you know, I've defined before, but just real quick, uh, the whole or minimally processed edible parts of plant and animal, where if anything's been added, it's only whole or minimally processed ingredients commonly found in kitchen. So basically we're talking about single ingredient plant and animal where you've got whole minimally processed things like spices. That's the only other thing that's been added to it. Real food, mm -hmm. low added sugar, real food. So if people espouse, and again, this is not just a whole total blanket where this just universally answers everything. But if someone says, for example, I'm doing the carnivore diet, meat only, mm -hmm. and you aren't going to believe the benefits I'm getting. You aren't going to believe what's happening to my this and that. You aren't going to believe what's happening to my energy and my mental focus and my skin or whatever, whatever the claim is. <clears throat> just for the sake of argument, let's, let's say that they are getting some or all of those benefits. Let's say they're real. Mm-hmm. Low added sugar, real food. Now that doesn't mean that it is for sure going to be real food, but the <laughs> but the diet, the way it's promoted, it is going to be very high in real food, even though it's all animal flesh food, right? right. It's not going to be hot dogs, you know, <laughs> and it's not a full sandwich at McDonald's. It's not, you know, it's it's going to be the Ideally, whole, minimally processed, edible parts of animal. That's what people are going to eat on carnivore, right? right? So it's going to be real food, animal, low added sugar. Just take your pick. Any of them. Low added sugar, real food. If you start there, it's going to be really wide, you know, perhaps when we look at a population as to which type is going to work best for an individual. You know, but if it's going to stand the test of time, and I think if you want it to, if you want it to be something that you're going to be able to take for decades to come, then those are the two things I think that we're going to start with. And those are the two things that I find pretty universally true among any of them that quote work. And that's why I say mm -hmm. every diet, you know, I, what happened was I was doing more research. And I was reading again for the thousandth time about the Mediterranean diet. And I was like, oh yeah, another study on the Mediterranean. I was like, so much positive research on the Mediterranean diet. What are they doing? And then looked at, looked at these others. What are they doing? And it was low added sugar, real food. Now, is there something magical specifically <laughs> to the Mediterranean diet? That's why I say it's my hypothesis. My hypothesis is no. My yeah. hypothesis yeah. is They've removed almost, almost removed all ultra processed food from it if someone's following it strictly. It's got a wide variety of foods that can be eaten on the Mediterranean diet. It has a wide variety, but they've mostly or all is you know eliminated or close to eliminated ultra processed food. And again, that's all of them, all of them.
Yeah. You get rid of the ultra processed food, make it a real low added sugar. And <laughs> you're going to be a real solid leg up on whatever you're doing and whatever your goal is. So that's my, that's the day's proxy. All of these <laughs> are a proxy. They act as a proxy for a low added sugar, real food. Well, you know, I mean, I think, I think a lot of people are starting to realize that you're, you're right. The closer we eat to nature, the better things are going to be. And, and that there's something to the processed food and sugars, which leads me into our next conversation that I wanted to have was about food addiction and yeah. how the processed food industry really does kind of trigger us to eat. And then we also have that, that thing you refer to as triggered eating and, and how that works. So I'd love to hear your take on food addiction and triggered yeah. eating. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, I do love this topic because it's so powerful. I really mm -hmm. do. It's like, it's so near and dear to me. And I work with our clients literally every day in the trenches daily with this. And I don't mean every client has to deal with this. That's not what I mean. Mm -hmm. But every day I'm working with someone where we need to address this in some way. So it, to me, it's a really powerful area of, of study and worthy of learning um, more about, especially if you're someone who has struggled, you know, mm -hmm. um, you're, you're someone who has said, man, what is going on? You know, why am I why do I have this, these, all these other areas in my life pretty solidly together, or I'm so accomplished in this area and this area and this area, but this one thing just continues to just be my nemesis and it doesn't make any sense. And what am I just blah, 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 fill in the blank. You're not though. You're not fill in the blank, um, mm -hmm. but you might be a triggered eater. So the way I think of it is first of all, let me uh, submit the premise. If I haven't before on the, on the previous uh, episode that is there such a thing as food addiction? Well, food, I have to put in quotes. I'm going to say no, um, but I'm going to say there definitely 100% unequivocally is ultra-processed food addiction. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I don't see people at all ever in the 24 years I've been online, 30 years all in being addicted to real food, which I just defined. But I, and if they, if they think they are, you're going to find ultra-processed food somewhere in the background. That's yeah. driving the craving. All right. So yes, ultra processed food addiction. The way I come at it though, is I kind of think of it as a big overarching umbrella called triggered eating. And I did that because I found, and if you, as a, as a listener heard me say food addiction, and you might be a food addict that can really hit people in a, whoa, I don't mean like, whoa, I've really been enlightened. I mean like, whoa. I don't like the sound of that at all. I don't want that label. No, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, I reject that label. I'm not going to listen to anything else that has that can be said because I'm not an addict. I'm not an addict in anything else. I've never been an. I've got family that are alcoholics. I've got this and that, and I don't. It's it's been detrimental to friends and family, and I and, and to think of myself that way, it just I'm shutting you off. I'm turning the you know I'm turning the set off. <laughs> So what I found is I was like, gosh, I don't want that to happen. And it's not about labeling. It's more like, hey, we have this area of study that if we come at it from an idea and a mindset with processes that have been shown to be effective for treating right, and managing mm -hmm. addiction, we can start to turn on lights 
and and really in, in illuminate and enlighten in ways where we can go, oh my God, it's so much make it so makes sense now. It mm -hmm. makes sense why I'm not rational when this and this and this. It makes sense why I, moderation on that specific junk food doesn't work for me. You know, mm -hmm. um, there's a saying that goes, uh, you know, I, I might have said it before, but moderation in all things, including moderation. <laughs> Yep. Some, sometimes, not across the board, sometimes for certain people in certain situations where certain ultra processed foods, sometimes zero is better than one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so moderation may not work for specific things, specific people at specific times and specific, you know, trigger situations. So I call it triggered eating, big umbrella. And underneath, you know, triggered eating, there's kind of a, there's kind of a continuum there. It almost doesn't matter, but it might help someone feel like they are somewhere on the continuum other than addict. So there's kind of user on the lowest end, you know, um, abuser, and then maybe on the far, far end, you go addict. And where addict is more, it, it may be closer to we would do just about anything to get it. You know, um, it, it's it, it can be, you know, and the continuum is is that is that huge. The bottom line is that the the approach is one where we, we we stop blaming the person for just not having willpower we we stop saying you should just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just be able to you know again moderate everything listen have the ice cream cone just stop at one right you know listen have the donut just stop at one and and this whole messaging which is so detrimental to so many people because they're so unaware um, is the, the messaging of you should never, ever, ever, ever mm -hmm. stop eating anything ever. Always just moderate it because if you stop it, you're on some kind of extreme, you know, crazy plan that you'll never be able to sustain. And it's not a lifestyle and it's a, it's a, it's a fad diet and it's all these things, which is really harming people so much by not allowing them to learn what's really going on with, again ultra processed food because we're not addicted to chicken breast and broccoli mm. no. no yeah that is not the issue and so mm. and when a chicken breast and broccoli is just you know a metaphor for anything that's real food in the plant and animal world you know we're not going to be addicted even we're not going to be addicted to strawberries okay and ribeye steak you know yeah. things that even are tastier you know than you know, maybe chicken breast and broccoli. Um, so, so you know, by at least coming at it with a, an idea or a mindset that it exists. And mm -hmm. as such, it's not a moral failing. If just like, you know, you wouldn't tell someone addicted to crack, well, just smoke a little, <laughs> you know, you know, just nope. Just do a little and just stop it, you know, once you've, you've done it in moderation. People will be like, oh, come on. Or, you know, any other hard drug or any whatever, you know, if you're addicted to it. You wouldn't tell a, a true alcoholic that has to truly abstain to be in recovery and be healthy and, and have it lead a good life for themselves. You wouldn't tell them, well, just stop at a drink. Um, ultra processed food, extremely similar. But you're going to get a lot of dietitians and so forth that are going to say, no such thing as food addiction because we need food to survive. You can't be addicted to things that you need for survival. My pushback against that, again, the distinction is 
they define anything as food. Yeah. It's all food to them. Um, I hate to say it, but the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics is in the pockets of big food. Big food's in the pockets of them. They're invested in big food. Big food's invested in them. If you don't think that it impacts the curriculum that registered dietitians are taught, if you don't think it impacts the messaging that registered dietitians put out to we in society, you're nuts because we're all just monkeys and bananas and, uh, <laughs> or not monkeys, we're all just monkeys and we all have certain bananas that motivate us, you know? And so- yeah. For the American Academy of Nutrition Dietetics, they're monkeys. We all are. Corporations are. And one of their bananas is money, and they get a lot of money from big food. Yeah. Supporting research, supporting their organization, back and forth, quid pro quo, it goes. Mm -hmm. So with mm -hmm. that being said, the messaging is always food is food. You can't be addicted to food. Well, what I say is stop calling everything food. Stop it. Ultra-processed yeah. food is not food. It's a Frankenstein's monster concocted in some laboratory. And like Frankenstein, it didn't go so well. I mean, my my prime example, when my cousins last week were eating blue Takis, those corn chip things, I, I oh, yeah. held one up and I was like, does this look like food? Yeah, they're chips. Are chips yeah. food? And then we had a great conversation about it. And after that, my cousin's like, I don't think I want any more. Yeah. <laughs> you ruined it, Janine. You ruined it. <laughs> well, good for you. But but I'm you know, it's it's not that it's it's like literally thinking about what are you eating. I, I think you have a very good point at at a lot of folks, you know, if they if they really think about some of the things they're really addicted to, are are what you're eat is what you're eating really food? Right. What is it? Right. And what machine made it and how did that come together and how much sugar is in it? Because my theory on food addiction is really that it's the sugar that's in the processed foods and the Franken foods that's driving us to want more and more and more and more and more. <laughs> what I would say is that I would, I would just say, I agree that it's that. And yeah, it, yeah. because the, and is these food chemists, at the big in big food are really smart at creating the bliss point mm -hmm. right and the bliss point isn't just sugar it's not just salt it's not just fat it's not even just sugar salt <laughs> fat combo it's the industrial additives and all the various concoctions that aren't even sugar salt or fat but that can also impact mouthfeel texture taste <laughs> you know all that stuff so what i say is if we go and that's the other thing too is um if we think ultra processed food rather than a particular compound, you know, I, I see what the issue is. It's, it's a, it's a caramel color. Bear with me. You know, it's caramel <laughs> color. That's the thing. It's in, it's in ultra processed food. If it's ultra processed food, it, we're not going to get to zero. Okay. Right. So I want to make sure everybody knows that I'm not saying, well, you've got to go to zero. He's nuts. No one can live that way. You can't live any way that he's talking about. Yes, you can. Because I'm not talking about 100%. I'm talking about striving to get the majority of what you're eating is real food. We've gone the other way. 60 to 90% of what we're consuming is ultra-processed food as adults in the United States. 60 to 90%. What I'm saying is that, and we can do this, I'm not alone. I'm at 90% plus. I'm not alone. And I used to be right. one, trust me, I was a meat and potatoes guy. I was just no vegetables. I was just whatever, especially in my powerlifting days when I was extra, extra fluffy, you know, getting up to 235 pounds. 
So I'm not someone who was naturally, even though I was fitness at a very young age, I wasn't nutritionally fit at a very young age. You know, I was like, mm -hmm. eh, whatever, you know. And um, so it can be done. And it's about flipping. It's about eating more real food. So you crowd out. We're going to, we want to crowd out, right? The, the ultra processed food. What's happened is we've done the flip. We've eat, yeah. we're eating so much ultra processed food. We've crowded out real food. So um, I can, I've got a, and this, I didn't invent this, but just for your listeners, they might find it interesting to kind of see like, are you, are you a triggered eater? I've got seven questions if they mm -hmm. would want to answer them for themselves. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Let's okay. do it. So um, question one, have there been frequent sustained periods um, when your intake of food was for the purposes other than fuel for your body? Okay. All right. Frequent sustained periods when um, your intake of food or drink was for purposes other than fuel for your body. When you stopped eating or drinking certain things, have you experienced physical or emotional withdrawal? Symptoms mm. such as irritability, anxiety, shakes, sweats, nausea, or vomiting. Okay. So basically, number two, withdrawal. Three, have you sometimes eaten or drank more for a longer period of time than you wanted to or for the purpose of escape? Mm -hmm. Number four, have you excessively eaten or drank even though, even though there have been negative consequences to your mood, weight, self-esteem, health, job, or family? So this number four is about, did you do it even though there were consequences that were substantial? Okay. Mm -hmm. Number five, have you put off or reduced social, recreational, work, or household activities because of your eating, drinking habits? Have you put off? Did you avoid those things um, because of your eating, drinking habits? And it's not uncommon. Number six, have you spent a significant amount of time obtaining, using, concealing, planning, or recovering from your eating or drinking? Have you spent a lot of time thinking about eating or drinking? Have you concealed or minimized your eating, drinking? Um, have you thought of schemes to avoid getting caught? Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll talk, I'll talk about that one in a minute. If you remind me, um, cause mm -hmm. I've got, I can't tell you, you know, how many, how many clients that, you know, just, I get to know my clients really well. Cause we get, we can get really personal, um, when they want to share and just, um, and what happens there. So number seven, have you thought about cutting down or controlling your eating, drinking, but been unsuccessful to do so? Mm -hmm. So those are the seven people can kind of, they can <laughs> scrub back when this is a play and they can, you know, um, and hit them again. So first of all, I want to say that how many of these have to be true before you, um, you know, maybe a triggered eater? Um, if you answered three or more out of the seven, wow. you are very likely a triggered eater. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of the things I've done in the past, let's put it this way, I'll kind of call myself out. When I was younger, I actually would hide my my addiction to goldfish crackers. Yeah. I, you know, I discovered you could get the big bin of them for, you know, I don't know how much it costs now, but back in the day, it was like $4.99 on sale. And, and that was what I ate those in Twizzlers in college. And right. then my, my college roommate, bless her heart. She was a sweet gal was like, did you just eat the whole container in like a week? And I'm like, no, no, 
Yeah. Never, never. Right. So then I started hiding. I'd be out on walks. Eating. Yeah. <laughs> my things because I was like, I don't want her to say anything ever again. Oh right. my gosh. You know, so right. those things have happened. I know I'm not the only one. Absolutely not. You know, um, early, early on, you know, I've been online 24 years early, early on. I had a client say she could eat an entire package of Oreos in the living room, watching TV with her husband in the room without him knowing he was that she ate the Oreos. Wow. Wow. He'd had him to the side. She could just pull them one at a time, you know, and they were out of sight. And he was always he was always stupefied as to why, um, because she wanted to, she expressed she wanted to get her weight under control or blah, 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 you know, why she wasn't able to, because she hardly ate anything. That's what he saw. Mm. Um, but, you know, but she knew different. And then, you know, just things like, and I say this because I want people to know that this is not, this is more common than people are talking about. Yeah. Okay. And this is the nature of, we'll say addiction or triggered eating. It's, you are not weak-willed. You are not less than. You are not broken. You are not defective. You are not any moral judgment, anything, anybody. That none of those things are true. But if you're a triggered eater slash you've got some level, some level of addiction on the continuum going on with ultra-processed food, what I always say is it makes really smart people feel and look really dumb. Okay. And you're not dumb. It makes really strong people look and feel weak. Um, and so it makes things where you just, you know, I don't have hair, but if you, if I could have hair and I could pull my hair out <laughs> going, going, um, why are you so irrational? Why is it, you know, why is, why can't you just, you know, get it together? And <laughs> that's what, triggered eating slash, you know, uh, addiction does. So once we get that addressed specifically, and it's its own element in, in the process of very frequently in people's journeys through transformation, it's its own element. And again, this isn't about, okay, you you never get to eat anything that tastes good ever again. You never get to eat a single, anything that's ultra processed ever again in your life. Not true, not true, not true. Just as you're not weak willed, a moral failing, for, for if, if you are subject to it and you're under the influence of it, um, it is also is an elimination of all things for the rest of your life that ever tastes good. But it does need to be addressed. And, um, you know, I, I, I can't tell you a number of clients that, so they're going to come home and they want to have what they anybody would consider a reasonable dinner that somebody there has made, okay? Mm -hmm. Whether wife's coming home, husband made it, husband's coming home, wife made it, whatever. Somebody at home made a dinner. And they want to eat this reasonable dinner at home and have it be like, well, this looks sane. You know, this <laughs> looks good, normal. And they stop at fast food on the way home, eat the fast food before they go home, throw away the trash before they go home. So there's no evidence of the trash. It's not in the car. It's nowhere around. They stop. They'll swing into a, a gas mart, you know, a convenience store just to use the garbage can, toss the fast food garbage, go home. And have a quote sensible dinner, mm -hmm. and again, the people at home and the people around them are stupefied as to why this person is obese or whatever, or, or continues to say, no matter what I do, I can't seem to lose any weight, and all these kinds of things. And so it is embarrassing. It can feel embarrassing. It can feel like 
it's mortifying to think about, you know, the behaviors, but it isn't a reflection of you as a person. There is, I think of it this way, there is it, meaning mm -hmm. like the triggered eating addiction, and there is you. Now they're combined, right? I get <laughs> it. It's, it's all in the same unit of the, the mind body connection. It's all there. But if we, one of the elements we do to kind of start it, I won't get into the details because this, that'd be another three hours, but, <laughs> but one of the elements we do is separate it from you so that you can kind of look at it separately and say, okay, I need to deal with this thing. Mm -hmm. And this thing is in me, but separate from me. Mm -hmm. And once I understand this thing, oh, I've got, I've got just a huge advantage, you know, on progress. Um, research says that people that are obese, uh, they're saying right now that, you know, 25, maybe 30% are, they're uh, addicted according to something called the Yale food addiction scale. You know, <laughs> people in my world, you know, in your world, doc, you know, or at least have heard of the Yale food addiction scale, but yeah. for the lay person out there, it's, you know, obviously a scientific measure that puts people on, you know, are you more likely to be a food addict? And again, they're saying food. I'm not saying food. I'm going to say ultra processed foods. That's always, please, as a listener, get, you make it as clear as you can that anytime I say that, even if I accidentally say food addict, I'm saying ultra processed food addict. Mm -hmm. But anyway, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're saying 25, 30%. I'm going to say it's much, much higher, probably more mm -hmm. like for people that are obese, more like double that. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, it's one of these things where if you, if the seven questions that I asked and some of the things I've been talking about resonate, please know you're not in some, well, you're in this some outlier 10% of the world and the other 90% have it all figured out and they're all good and blah, blah, blah. No, ultra processed food is nasty, yeah. nasty, nasty, nasty. I still eat some, I still eat some, it's It's around. You know, about 10% of what I eat maybe will be it. Um, but uh, but anyway, it's because I'm I'm human and I, I'm going to live in this world <laughs> and in this environment and and enjoy life. And it has to be things that work for me, um, for me to for me to be okay with it. But about 10% of what I eat will be ultra processed something. So I'm guessing, or not I'm guessing, I'm I'm wondering what those things are, because I think a lot of people right now are probably like, really? hmm. <laughs> What are what those you, things? Where do yeah. I fit? You know, do I, do I fit in on this category of what does, do I eat like coach David? That's, that's probably what folks are thinking. So what yeah. are, what are your go-tos for, for ultra processed foods that you eat? So, you know, it's okay. So one thing that would be ultra processed for me that I might have, um, two, three times a month, once a week, two, three times a month is going to be some kind of pizza. Mm-hmm. That for, you know, I used to say seven days without pizza makes one week. <laughs> okay. Okay. So and I was a, I just, pizza was my thing. And so I can still have it and I will still have it. Um, the reason I say it's the only reason I say it's not every week is um, I will sometimes make my own. And if I make my own, I can make it real food. You know, mm -hmm. I can make it from a cauliflower, you know, based crust. Then I can add a marinara, which is real food, you know, tomatoes, basil, oregano, blah, 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 a marinara. Then I can add some kind of uh, real food animal protein, you know, maybe beef or whatever. Um, and I can add uh, a little bit of uh, cheese. If, mm -hmm. if you look at that, it's going to be not perfectly unprocessed, but minimally processed. 
with nothing extra added to it. It's not even orange. It's still white and, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's going to be it. You know, I might add uh, a couple other vegetables to it, but I don't worry about getting my vegetables on my pizza. I have, uh, <laughs> I have four to six cups of vegetables a day. I probably have 40 pounds of vegetables a month, you know? So, um, so I don't worry about it on that pizza, but that would be one shining example where for sure uh, that now I'll say this too: get me at Christmas, get me at Thanksgiving, get me at something like that. And I look and I don't have some like uh, junk just to have it. I, I still really want it to be good. Mm -hmm. Like I want it to be worth it. If I'm going to have ultra process something uh, to me, I want it to really feel worth it. Like if I'm going to blow a thousand calories or whatever it is <laughs> on this, I don't want to walk away going, are you kidding me? I just ate a thousand calories of that, you know? So, so not the grocery store pie. <laughs> not, not so much. No, no. Um, although I will say I not, not to give her, not to give her justice, but just so you, people can know that I, I do have some parts of me that are real. You know, I really am. I'm just a real person. Um, don't ask me why they've done a good job. The food chemist did a good job. I have it. What I have it once a year, twice a year at the most, a Marie calendar, Dutch apple pie <laughs> store-bought frozen store-bought Marie calendar, Dutch apple pie. You got to bake it. But I, I think she's done a good job there. And, uh, <laughs> and, and here's the thing though, if for me, and this is what this say to somebody listening who may be a triggered eater, I, I know I'm setting off people and I hate to do that. I hate I hate to put out like food porn, you know, on, uh, on, on any of these, but I, I but, but I, I, I think it's important because you asked that people know that on rare occasion, I'm going to have that pizza, not as rare, you know, and it works for me. And by works for me, what I mean is, does it set off for me a signal that says have more and more mm -hmm. and more and more? Mm -hmm. Does it set off a signal in me these days that says, well, maybe don't have more of that, but now you crave this and this and this and this and this. It can be different, a different category. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. for me, those things are no. Now, the reason that a, that pie or whatever doesn't, and it can be this way, is I have it so I have that anyway so infrequently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that's just kind of a that's just kind of a self-imposed limitation. And again, I've just got a I have incredibly high uh standard for my personal taste. On consuming ultra processed food, it has to be worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's it. No, go ahead. No, it, it makes sense. It makes sense. I think, I think once you've been doing this long enough, you start to realize that some processed foods taste more chemical than, yeah. than whole foods. And you'll really start to realize that I don't like how that actually tastes. It, you know, ugh, I'd rather have something that's homemade. So, you know, I, it makes sense. And I, and I've found that a lot of my patients will say that over time. I myself, like, I'm like that. I ultra process things. There's not much that I do want anymore. Um, pizza of course is one of them. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm really, you know, I'm neurotic about like what place, what ingredients they use. Yes. So I, I take it to another level or we do make it at home. Cause my husband and I, so guys just a little background coach Dave and I both from Illinois and in Illinois yeah. there's there's standards when it comes to pizza and yes. so <laughs> we might be a little nitpicky but yes yeah. I, I'm I'm nitpicky when it comes to those kind of things and I find it it really mm. does have to do with, with probably the next thing I really wanted to talk about as we we get towards the end of the podcast here is emotional fitness because mm -hmm. 
I think this is what we develop over time that that ability to go there are standards of pizza there are standards of pie that I will tolerate there are you know yeah. things of right. that nature so tell us what the heck is emotional fitness and let's talk about those 10 principles of living and thinking um that support improving it so i look at emotional fitness as incredibly powerful element of the whole transformation process because you know, it, once we figured out nutrition enough to kind of be able to say, Hey, I know what, I know what to eat. I really do not. I'm coming in half baked and I think I know, but if you really do, you know, and I've got this framework and then exercise wise, I know uh, at least what to do. And I've got a model that works for me, some mm -hmm. kind of, some kind of aerobic, something, something, something strength-based woven in there. And I'm doing it a reasonable amount of time based on reasonable standards, blah, blah, blah. We know those are the two primary elements with regard to the inputs and the outputs for caloric control and therefore taking our weight anywhere we want it. If somebody wants to gain weight, we're going to consume that excess calories more than our maintenance, right? And our weight, weight will go up. But that's not what 95%, 99% of the people probably listening to this podcast are more interested in. They're either in, interested in maintaining, which is obviously taking in the same amount of calories as we need overall compared to what we burn. But probably, you know, some percent um, want to lose the, some excess, and that is taking in less calories than we need. So the nutrition and exercise, or I should say daily activity, not just even, you know, straight up exercise, just moving mm -hmm. all of that input and output dictate where our weight's going to go up, stay the same, go down. The, the, to keep the nutrition and exercise bus on the, on the road and not have it going in the ditch, a primary element is something that we just talked about, which is triggered eating. We've got to address that because it'll go in the ditch quick if we're less like, you know, moderation in all things. You know, everybody tells me, my dietitian tells me that I should be able to just eat a donut and stop. I never can, but I, I should be able to. So there must be something wrong with me. It's my moral failing. I just need to buck up more. I need to somehow pull myself up by my bootstraps more and all this kind of garbage. And it is garbage because that isn't going to work if your thing is that. All right. So we talked about that. Come over to emotional fitness. What emotional fitness does is helps us to feel authentically good more often. Okay. So um, as a part of that, as a part of emotional fitness, we have more self-awareness. Like we're more self-aware of what are we really doing? You know, can we, can we square up with the mirror? Mm -hmm. and and have the reflection reflect back to us without imperfections being catastrophic you know because that oftentimes can is interpreted in a way that feels just so catastrophically demoralizing to not be perfect and no one is so a part of emotional fitness is having an awareness of our positive attributes our imperfections and having an ability to kind of accept, you know, our imperfections, maybe keep working on them, but not have it be something that just destroys us when we think of it and, not, and has us at a point where we can't square up with that mirror and go, okay, this is, this is where I am. This is, it's okay. You know, I'm going to work on these things or, or not, but this is where I am. But I also have these good things. And that's why we also say with that, uh, don't toss the baby out with the bathwater. You know, mm -hmm. we're all good and bad, you know, um, sinner and saint, 
you know, we've got all, all we all have the, the, the good and not so good qualities. But that doesn't mean that we're wholly bad if we've got something that's imperfect. All right. So emotional fitness, feeling authentically good, more self-awareness, um, increased self-regulation. So an ability to, in those moments of test or truth or stress or anxiety, to kind of bring the temperature down, not go so catastrophic again. There's that catastrophic word. And create that space or recognize there is a space. You know, Dr. Viktor Frankl um, famously has said in his from his book, Man's uh, Search for Meaning, he was a concentration camp survivor. Um, and he wrote about it, his experience there and what he saw with um, people that were living it, you know, starving and all the, the abuse that occurred. And what he, one of the things he recognized that stood out to him the most is not every single person there checked out. Mm -hmm. Not every single person there lost their mind. Not every single person there was depressed. Not every single person there was hopeless. There was a spectrum of people from gone, checked out, hopeless to the middle, to even people who were hopeful and had a positive attitude and all of these things. And so one of the things he has said is between the stimulus and the response, is a space. And it's in that space that we can choose our response. And in choosing our response, we choose the life that we're going to have. And so that has always meant a lot to me. It's always been powerful for me because I've always felt if those poor souls who were living that horror, you know, if some of them could have some kind of positive, reasonable, decent, hopeful, whatever attitude. How can I not? How, I mean, what is going on, you know, in, in some day-to-day -day existence where some anxiety producing things, some stressful thing, that's, those are all stimuluses, whatever the stimulus is. So between the stimulus and the response, there's a space. And in that space, we have, the, we retain the ability to choose our response with increased emotional fitness we have a better ability to see the space, create just a little bit more time, just a little bit more time to make the better choice, to make the, you know, so if we're trying to keep nutrition and exercise on the straight and narrow, I can tell you that if, if it's not triggered eating, that's causing it to go off in the ditch, it's emotional. It's, it's a, it's a too underdeveloped emotional fitness and emotional fitness. I refer to it as emotional fitness. And I like that because it, to me, it's fitness-based. It's, it's not eye color. It's not something you're stuck with, born with. That's it. You know, um, nature nurture has been involved. You know, there are genes. There is a nurturing aspect, parental, guardian, raising, all the stuff that goes into that and all the societal things, sure. But it is something that can be strengthened. It is something that can be grown and Whatever, le whatever level you're at, whatever emotional fitness level you have right now, if you find that you don't manage anxiety-producing situations, the stimulus, stress, strife, those types of things very well, if you find that you do what I call more, if you have more conditioned automated responses, so conditioned automated responses, you know, it's kind of the Pavlov's dog thing that a lot of people <laughs> we've all heard of, you know, where he, he taught it, where he, 
he eventually <laughs> conditioned the dogs where he could just ring the bell and they would salivate even if no food was coming. Yeah. We do that in our life patterns, depending on various stimuli where it's like, just bear with me. Let's just say that your, your trigger stimulus is an argument with your spouse. Mm -hmm. And in your view that in any argument of any kind with your spouse just feels catastrophic. It just feels like the world's going to come to an end. <laughs> there was no true abuse. It wasn't a yelling match, but it was just a, you know, whatever but it just feels that way. And you've become so conditioned that when that happens, and it could be from trauma in the past related to that, it could be related to any number of things. And yes, a lot of times there is trauma in the past, but not always, but let's say it's just, but it doesn't matter whether there is or isn't. Bottom line is it can become so conditioned that when that stimulus, let's say the argument happens, it's that fast. Mm -hmm. There's no space. Mm -hmm. And when there's no space, it's like, what do we do? I need to escape right now. You know, I need to check out. I can't handle this. I, my world's crumbling. It's coming to an end. This is going to be awful, terrible, horrible, nightmare, you know, whatever catastrophic words we use. And so how do I get relief instantaneously right now? <laughs> the same thing I've done for 10 years. I eat junk for the next 10 minutes or whatever. You know, I eat a thousand calories or whatever it is. I drink, whatever, whatever it is, I check out for a bit, I get some temporary relief and then I suffer for it, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's why one of the things I say when it comes to emotional fitness, we want to feel authentically good more often rather than regretfully good. Mm. So regretful, regretfully good is when we do that thousand calorie thing and we feel maybe good for about 10 seconds <laughs> and then we regret it, you know? Yep. Or we yeah. can do retail therapy where you're like, all right, screw it. I'm going out. I'm going shopping. You spend $500 that you don't have. And then you get the credit card bill later and you're like, um, oh, that's, that's bad. You know, yeah. it's like, this is, this is going to stink to pay for. Yep. So that's the, yeah. that's the premise. Gotcha. Um, and so with emotional fitness, that's the basis for it. And so to me, it's like, so what, goes into, you know, making that up. What, what makes up emotional fitness? Well, it's a lot of things. It's muddy. Doc. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is, it's not like saying these are proteins. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. can, we can define that, you know, I mean, it's, mm. you know, it's like a hundred meter sprint in the Olympics. It's like, how do we know who won the person with the best time? You know, it's kind of like compared to watching, you know, Olympic diving who won, Based on the judges, you know, so emotional fitness is a little bit tougher on that, but um, there are at least 10 elements that go into it. And I think maybe just for time's sake, if I just, if I just mention even just the first kind of like three or four, okay, you know, I, I think it, I think it might help if that's okay. Sure. Sure. So like, what's a factor that can go into mindset? And something that I consider a strong element of emotional fitness. I just say it's focus. Mm -hmm. And the principle is um, focus on what you want, not on what you fear or don't want. And that's a really tough thing to do because the, the mind is constantly going to be putting things in front of you that says, what about, what about, what about, what about, you know, mm -hmm. well, what about this? And what about that? And be aware of this and caution this. And what about this? 
And it's not like from an evolutionary perspective, we don't need to be aware of those things. We do. We need to look both ways before we cross the street. I mean, that's an evolutionary thing. We need to be, we need to be looking out for the saber-toothed tiger. I got it. But we do that too much. You know, we, we that gets put on overdrive, especially in this super anxiety producing society that we we just especially currently live in. So focus on what you want, not on what you fear or don't want. And so keep bringing yourself back to, and in fact, I'll even say to myself, David, what do you want? Like if I'm really feeling the stress and strife, I'll be like, what about this one? What do you want? Well, I want this. Okay. And then your next question may be, how? How do I get that? And what I would say is, don't worry about the how right now. Just keep focusing on what you want. And I'm not saying, like, I think it was um, Rhonda Byrne in um, The the Secret, Mm -hmm. where, you know, I can manifest a parking spot in Chicago (laughs) if I focus on it. I'm just going to laugh at that. No, I'm not. We're not going to manifest a parking spot in Chicago. That's not what I'm saying. So it's not about just, you know, but I am going to say that generally speaking, if you focus on what you want rather than what you fear or don't want, you're much more likely to get it. It's generally going to be more positively focused. That positive focus is going to key you in to be on the lookout for those things that you want. Um, it, it, It increases attention for those things. And it kind of follows what I consider a universal law, which is whatever we focus on grows. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we become what we focus on the most. Mm-hmm. So that's a super, you know, just a super kind of a quick summary of an, an emotional fitness element, you know, focus. But we can learn. It's something that can be learned. Um, yeah. You know, focusing on what you want, not on what you fear or don't want is something that, you know, that can be learned. And I'm guessing you go through that in your programs too with folks, you know, because guys, he has an 18 week program and that's a decent amount of time to learn how to build your emotional fitness and how to train it. Because ultimately, like I'm gathering what you're saying and and I've learned over time too, that it's something that you have to train yourself to really understand and and be able to work through. You do. And it isn't something, you know, I was asked, um, you know, uh, by someone not that long ago, they were like, so, okay, Dave, so that's great on emotional fitness. So what do you do? Just, you know, tell someone not to feel a certain way and not to just know that's not how it works at all. You know, but what happens is as I remember me being aghast 25 years ago when I was at a seminar and someone said that I could control my response to a situation. (laughs) I was like, my thinking back then was, but I, I was like, no, a situation occurs and that therefore creates a response. It creates a response. And it took me a bit to go, no, because not everybody responds the same as you. Yeah. Not everybody responds necessarily whatever, whatever it may be. And t- it took me a bit. So what I'm saying is that as you learn these things and you start to really kind of go, oh, okay, there's... I can, okay, so you're saying I can choose. It's not a foregone conclusion that I have to do the thing when the stimulus occurs. You don't have to. You don't. Other people, other people that are no more talented than you, no more gifted than you, um, are able to make that different choice in those situations. And you can grow that emotional fitness muscle so that you can too. So the second thing 
of let's say my top 10, the second thing I would say is gratitude. Mm -hmm. And so there isn't a book on personal growth that doesn't talk about gratitude. And that's with, you know, that's with, with great reason. Um, it is the, you know, probably, you know, the number one virtue and mm -hmm. the, you know, kind of the primary or master of all others. So it's like, if you're not grateful consistently, proactively grateful for what you already have, it's going to be a rough life. Mm -hmm. No matter what it is, there are people that have so much less than me and anybody listening to this, and they are so grateful. So it isn't about, I just need more. If I just had more, I'd be grateful. If people would just behave, I would be grateful. If this and that, you can be grateful um, regardless. And it's, again, something, it's a muscle that can be strengthened. It's something that if you put more attention to it um, and looking for ways to be grateful, um, it's something that you can grow. And when mm -hmm. you do, what happens is, if you think about it, these just these first two, if you're focusing more on what you want rather than what you fear or don't want, and if you're more generally grateful for all the things, big and small, preferably the smaller the better, if you're grateful, uh, uh, if you are um, religious or God-fearing, then maybe start with something you're grateful for about God, fine, or your higher power. Next, start with some, and then next go to some, just something you're one thing, no matter how little it is that you're grateful for about yourself, mm -hmm. just something, anything that you have two arms or whatever it may be. Uh, uh, the next would be something you're grateful for about someone else. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying this is a perfect pecking order, but just things to consider. It doesn't have to be some crazy long drawn out thing. And then I like to, the fourth thing that I'll bring in and three, if you're not religious, the th you know, third thing is just something you're grateful for about the world, just no matter what it may be. Some of the things that you have available to you, some of the things that make life a, a modern convenience, or just whatever, the smallest thing that maybe the fact that your home may be warm in the winter, you know, just, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like so many people don't, and so, you know, billions of people don't have clean water right. on any right. given day in the world, billions. And you go, well, that's, crazy, but it's true. Mm -hmm. And so uh, focusing on what you want, practicing more proactive gratitude, proactive, meaning somebody didn't do something for us. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't somebody did something nice for us. And we went, thank you. Mm -hmm. That's reactive gratitude. And that's great. Please do that. Some people don't even do that these days. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but if you can do that, that's great. And then, then the proactive is kind of next level, but doing that more and more and more and being grateful for the smallest of things is a huge factor on emotional fitness. The more we do that, the more we're able to be more measured in that response. And we start to create a little bit more space in there. Um, a third thing would be something I refer to as either control or serenity. So I say serenity because again, I'm not religious. I'm a humble agnostic. So when I say this, people are like, okay, um, he's talking about this stuff from a bit of a religious perspective. So he must be, um, I don't have anything against anybody who is, I can say I'm a humble agnostic and, but I, I do really love uh, what has at least become popularized as a serenity prayer, you mm -hmm. know, accept the things you cannot change. Okay. I'm talking about control here because a lot of times we want to control more than we can, and that's not good for emotional fitness. So accept the things you cannot change, have the courage 
to change the things you can. So that's about doing something. That's about being your best personal advocate for yourself, doing doing something, and then seeking the wisdom to, to know the difference. So that's a, a real kind of a simple abbreviated uh, factor, but it's also one of the most, it's one of the primary things that I find in working with students that they struggle with the most because they want to control more than they can. Yes. Yes. Yep. I think, I think that's a big thing for a lot of us um, and, and anywhere in life and, and possibly one of the reasons that's a trigger that gets us to stress eating and doing things as well. Oh my goodness, Dave, as well, as, as always a lot of good information. And I think the folks are going to have a lot of things to, to think about here. So can you give us a little background on, on your website and what they'll find and what programs you have going on right now? You bet. So, um, we've been online. If, uh, first time hearing me, we've been online, online since 1999. (laughs) So we, uh, we meet you where you are. We are going to come at this from a comprehensive uh, approach, but one that is bite-sized, progressive, step-by-step, that's going to address all the elements, but not all of them the same for every single person that comes in in the same way. We want to find out where you're at, what you, where your strengths are, where um, you um, may need some things shored up and improved so that you can make these uh, better choices. So you can know what to choose. And so you can make the better choices that are going to keep you moving in the direction you want to get to. You know, our, our motto is losing the excess one more time for the last time. Mm-hmm. We know, you know, you're, unless you're uh, competing in some weight-based event, which almost no one is, mm-hmm. you don't want to lose it and regain it. So everything we do is about that. It's about losing it one more time for the last time. So we're going to come at it comprehensively. We're going to come at it. We're going to um, meet you where you are. We want to take it personally. What will happen also is when, you know, when someone comes in shortly after they do, we're going to do a one-on-one if you want. Okay. You'll do a one-on-one with me, like on zoom. We'll talk about what's going on. We'll get a, we'll get a a plan mapped out. Um, And it's just a really, uh, a really great kind of place for me to kind of get to know background and what's going on there, but that's that's the level of personal we get. And then it stays personal the more there continues to be communication. And a lot of times the communication is handled through a username, password protected, you know, area, uh, you know, on campus, as we say, online on campus, a qu- unlimited question and answer. Coaches are going to be checking on you. Um, we're going to address the nutrition. We're going to address the exercise. We're going to address these elements and more that we've talked about here. But we're going to do it in just bite-sized, progressive, um, in a bite-sized, progressive manner so that it isn't something that's overwhelming. Online, on campus, most of our students spend between three and four minutes a day. Hmm. So we want you to do what you've got to do, learn what you've got to learn, ask any questions. That could take you more time if you want to ask questions. And then we want you to take what you're learning and apply it in the real world offline um, so that you're, uh, you're living life and uh, enjoying it in the way that you deserve. Awesome. Awesome. So yes, guys, Leanness Lifestyle University, you'll find on my link at drjkrausnd.com. It's got a lot of great info there. So don't hesitate to reach out. Coach David, thank you again for coming on the Health Fix. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. 
Hey, fellow health junkie, thanks for listening to the Health Fix Podcast. If you enjoyed tuning in, please help support me to get the word out about the podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review, and just get that word out. Thanks again for listening.